Do we know? That's what we're asking. Do we know what it is to be a Christian? We, we call ourselves Christians, uh, but do we know about it? And let, let me put it this way. Uh, when you were born, which happened to all of you, when you first emerged from your mother's womb, which happened to all of us, um, at that point, you had really no idea what had just gone on, did you? And if you think about it, at that point, in that, those first days, you, you, your awareness of yourself hadn't developed when you were a little tiny baby. In, in those early days, you had an awareness of your existence. Now, you could feel the warmth and the cold, and you cried. You would have cried a lot, because that's what babies do. You would have cried when you were hungry, and cried when you were tired, and cried when you needed to do a pee, and cried when you were, when you were bored, or, or you just cried all the time, because that's what babies do. And it's pretty good that we've grown out of that, isn't it? Uh, but as you grew older, you began to learn what had happened to you, what happened to bring you into being. You learned about the birds and the bees and about growing inside a womb and about labor and about birth. And, and you learned about your family history. You learned about the place where you were born, the culture that you were born into, your, your particular place and time. It takes, takes some years, really, decades maybe, to get your head around that. You didn't know it at the beginning. And, and I think in a similar way, Someone can be a Christian, they can believe in Jesus and have a living experience of that, but not really know much about how it happened. They have a living experience of being born again, but there's loads of room for learning. So do we know what it is to be a Christian? Maybe sometimes in our Christian life we can stay kind of stuck as screaming infants, um, and we don't, our kind of knowing of what it, what it means to be a Christian doesn't really get beyond our need to to eat and to pee. Well, as Mark said, we are coming to the end of our journey through 1 John this morning. Then this letter written by the beloved disciple to some churches who are under pressure. And in our passage, we have the reason for his writing. If you look there at verse 13 of chapter 5, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He writes to Christians. And why does he write to them? The next thing. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Do we know that? That we have eternal life? Of course we do. And yet, you know, I wonder, I wonder if a stranger walking amongst us would go away with the impression that they have been with people who know they have eternal life. If somebody came and spent some time with them and they went away and he said, what were those people like? Would they say, oh, they are people who know that they have eternal life? Would they? What, what would that even look like? Well, John writes this letter so that these Christians might know what it is to believe in Jesus. Our passage today, we're going to look at it in two parts. The first thing is belief is rooted in testimony, and then belief produces confidence. Belief rooted in testimony, verses 6 to 13. And look where we finished last week in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In John's writing, he describes the world as a whole kind of system of existence pitted against God. The world is the rejection of God. The world is the darkness. And the one who escapes that, the one who escapes the inevitable demise of the world, says John, the one that overcomes is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is important stuff. It's important to believe who Jesus is. But where does the belief come from? It's important to believe, but where does it come from? And that's what John presses into next. And he's writing to those who believe, but he wants them to understand their belief. 
And in verses 6 to 13, the, the repeated word is the word testimony, testify. I wonder, do we know that Christian belief is based on testimony? A testimony is a statement of evidence when uh, and belief responds to it. And when we say we believe, we are deciding on a testimony. We say we think the testimony is valid, and so we make our decisions based on that. Now, I could ask you this morning, did my children eat pizza on Friday evening? How would you know the answer? You could ask me, couldn't you? That would be a good start. Um, and I could say, yes, my children did eat pizza. And I could describe it to you. I could say I got some type OO Italian flour given by an Italian, so if I added authenticity, slightly out of date, but it still works. And I could describe to you how I made the pizza dough and the whole process of it and what happened and how the children ate it. Or, or you could go and ask Nikki or Josie or Lizzie or Daniel or Matty. You could see if the stories match up. You could hear the testimony and then you make an assessment based on the testimony, and your believing is, is what comes from that. That's how it is with being a Christian. Our belief is based on testimony. But whose testimony? See there in verse 9? God's testimony. It's God's testimony. Well, how does God do it? How does God testify? Verses 6 to 10. Follow it with me. Verse 5, the subject is Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 6, this is the one who came. God's testimony is about his son who came, how he sent his son who left the glorious perfections of heaven and he became flesh, he became like us, God became man, Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says, he came by water and blood. Now there's loads of discussion about what these things might mean. I reckon most likely it refers to Jesus' baptism, the water, and his blood, the crucifixion. See, when Jesus launched his public ministry, he went to John the Baptist to be baptized. And our John records in his gospel that the Baptist, John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. There at the waters of baptism, Jesus is marked out as God's chosen one. But verse 6 of our passage, he didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. The testimony to Jesus isn't simply he came from God, but especially that he subjected himself to the violence of a cruel death on a cross. Uh, earlier in the letter, John has told us that this blood is what purifies us from sin, from all sin. God's testimony about his son is that his son came into the world. And his public appearing began to be revealed from his baptism. He came by the water. And God's testimony is about his son, Jesus Christ, who came to die. He came into the world to pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sins, especially by the blood. And then verse 6 goes on, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. God's testimony about his son is that his son came by water and blood and the Spirit testifies that it's true. Three witnesses the water, the blood, and the spirit who are united together in the one message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 10 says, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. And more woodenly perhaps, maybe slightly more literally, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in them. The spirit who descended on Christ at his baptism the same spirit who empowered Christ through his ministry, even to his death, 
The same Spirit speaks to the heart of believers and testifies to the truth so that they believe the testimony. See, the, the, the Spirit of God is the connection between those events of history, the ancient events, his story and our story. He connects the ancient events and believing hearts because the Spirit was there and he is here. How does God testify? Well, it's a triune testimony. God the Father testifies about God the Son by the working of God the Spirit. That's what our belief is based on. Our belief is based on what happened in history, on those events that happened in time and space, the appearing of, of the Son of God, the, the living, the dying of Jesus of Nazareth those thousands of years ago. We believe it. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God and that he came into our world and he died on the cross for our sins. That's the testimony. And it leaves us with two options. Verse 10. Whoever believes, whoever does not believe. Either we accept the testimony or we don't. Now, do we know that? There's not a continuum here. If you look into verse 10, you don't find a fence to sit on. You believe or you don't believe. You believe this, these things about the Lord Jesus or you don't. Now, which is it for you? And most of what we believe in life is based on testimony. We trust what someone else tells us. Verse 9 says it. We accept human testimony. But, but this isn't human testimony. It's from God about his son. If we don't accept it, we make him out to be a liar. Our belief is based on testimony. God testifies. God the Father testifies about God the Son by the working of God the Spirit. That is how he does it. What does he testify? Verse 11 to 13. See there in verse 11? What does he testify? Well, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This life. What is this life? Well, John in his gospel begins by telling us about the Word, who, the eternal Word, who was with God and is God, and in him is life. This is that life he's talking about, the life of God, not, not, not just the everlastingness of God but the quality of life that's found in the eternal relations of the Godhead. What does that mean? And in John's Gospel, he describes it in loads of ways. One way is in chapter 6, verse 35, when he, he describes it as having all our hunger and all our thirst satisfied. Now, all the deepest longing, the achings of our soul that echo back to Eden, where we were made to enjoy fellowship with God in paradise. And every human's heart yearns for it deep down. Everyone's searching for it. We're trying to find that satisfaction. But we were just licking up drops of water from the dust until the day when the Spirit testified to us of the Lord Jesus. And we came to him. And he shows us that in him is life. In him is the capacity to delight our souls for all eternity. In him is life in abundance, life with God forever. This life is in the Son of God. And how do you get it? Do you know how to get it? Verse 11. God gives it. Can't pay for it. How could you put a, a price on something so, so wonderful? We can't earn it. God gives it and it is given in verse 11, do you see? Given in his son. See, this testimony about God is not just the bare facts about Jesus. It, it is those. It is the facts. But it's trusting the one whom the facts are all about. And those who trust Jesus, God gives eternal life. Now, he doesn't 
take life from the Son and then give it to us. He takes his Son and he gives him to us by the Spirit. This Son, this Son who came into the world and poured out his blood because our sins had cut us off from life. And so this Son came into the world and by his death he answered our deepest need. And the shedding of his blood became for us the wellspring of life. God gave his Son for us. He loved us. So he gave his son to die in our place so that by believing in him we might not perish but have eternal life. But God didn't just give his son for us, John says. He gives his son to us. See that in verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That's the testimony of God. It's that when we trust Jesus, we get Jesus. If you got him, if you got the son, there's no life outside of him. There's nothing that matters more in all the world than to have the son. So how do we get him? That's an important question. Do you know how to get the son of God? We'll see verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 12, those who have the Son have life. Verse 13, those who believe in the name of the Son of God have life. How do we get the Son? We believe. It's by faith. We trust the testimony about him. And no matter how how small or feeble that faith might be, no matter how wobbly that faith might feel, even fickle perhaps at times, when we believe in Jesus, we have Jesus. We have all of Jesus. The smallest of faith takes hold of all of Christ. So have you got him? Is he yours? Our belief is rooted in the testimony. Our second thing. Belief produces confidence. Verse 13 to 21. Now I asked at the beginning whether we think a stranger spending some time with her would go away with the impression that they've been among a people who know they have eternal life. Now, what would it look like to be among a people who, are, who know they have eternal life? Let's see how John helps us. Verse 14. This is the confidence we have. Confidence. Belief produces confidence. Do a quick search on the internet about what confidence looks like, and you'll see things about body language and eye contact and stuff like that acting like you're confident, but not really being confident. Now, this is a real confidence, this, this confidence that John speaks about. What, what is it? What sort of confidence is it? Well, I think John points us in a couple of directions. First of all, verses 14 to 17, it is confidence in prayer. See this, verse 14? This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Why does John do that? Why does John talk about this now at this point? He wants believers to know they have eternal life and immediately his thoughts go to prayer. Why? When John speaks about eternal life, it is always personal. In his gospel, John 17, eternal life is to know God, to know the Father and the Son. 
to have fellowship with God. As we've seen, eternal life is to have the Son. It's relational. So when John says to these believers, he says, I want you to know that you have eternal life. He's saying, I want you to know that you have the Son. I want you to know that you have Jesus, and in him you have fellowship and relationship with the Father by the Spirit. But of course, the place he starts is talking to God, isn't it? Now, on a human level, if you want to be confident that you have a friendship with someone, where do you start? You talk to them, don't you? That's how it works. And since we have eternal life, we confidently approach God to talk to him. And then John says he gives us whatever we want, doesn't he? No, no, he doesn't say that at all. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, (laughs) he doesn't give what we want, he gives what he wants. That's wonderful. Oh, it'd be awful if it was any other way, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be terrible? Wouldn't it just make us shudder in horror to imagine God doing whatever we asked? It'd be like putting a two-year-old behind the controls of a jumbo jet. It's too much power, isn't it? How would we know what to ask? If God was going to do whatever we asked, how would we know what to ask for? We'd have to know everything about everything. Then we go to the Bible and we can see what God's will is and we can ask for that. The Spirit in us moves us to to, to ask for the things of God's will. But, But don't miss the heartbeat of what John's getting at here. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. He hears us. This prayer is not trying to force God's hand. It's about being heard by God communing with God. It's the assurance that God listens. Whatever we ask, saying we can pour out our hearts to him. And he's never going to be bored by what we say. He's never going to be distracted by what we say. Never going to be uninterested by what we tell him. He's never going to be annoyed at what we say. He listens. He hears us. He carefully listens and acts so as to bring about the infinite good and glory of his purposes. The confidence we have is that we are heard. One commentator said that prayer is the most direct expression of faith. It is the soul of the Christian life. Do we know what it is to be a Christian? Or are we stuck at the screaming infant stage? And and you might say, well, look, I've been a Christian for ages. I've been coming to church for years and years and decades. I know all about being a Christian. There's no point trying to teach granny to suck eggs. Fine, yeah. But what about our prayer life? John says, knowing we have eternal life is seen in confident communion with the living God in prayer, the delight of being heard. He's listening. The question is, are we talking? Prayer's hard, we know that, don't we? Praying together is even harder. We know that, but doesn't it just make our hearts sink a little bit? We've got direct access to the living God. We have a connection absolutely secured in his Son, and he's given his Spirit to bind us all together, and he's listening. We'd rather go and watch telly. We'd rather do anything, wouldn't we? Rather than get on our knees and pray. Come together to pray. And as we hear that, if our responses begin to feel those waves of guilt and start to beat ourselves up, we've missed the point again, haven't we? Because this sweet confidence comes from our belief in the name of the Son of God. So the only response is just to go to him and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to know that I have eternal life. Help me to... Help this knowing to cultivate this confidence that we might talk to you and talk to you with that soul-melting happiness that the living God hears us. He hears us. Uh, John's got a bit more to say about prayer, hasn't he? See verse 16? 
if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death. So when, when you see another Christian sin, what should you do first? When you see a brother or sister sin, what do you do? Do you ignore it? Gossip about it? Feel a little bit smug and self-righteous? No. Verse 16, the first thing, you should pray. You should pray. John's thrown us a bit of a curveball, hasn't he? This sin that does not lead to death and a sin that does lead to death. What does he say? Look at verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. He's not differentiating on on what the sin is, but on where the sin ends. You see, John talks about sin in a number of different ways. We've seen it as we've come through 1 John. We saw in chapter 3 that there's a kind of sin that is a lawlessness. It's a sin that reflects a heart that hates God and is close to Christ. It's the sin of an unbeliever. But then in chapter 1, he spoke about a kind of sin that, that happens for believers. When believers sin, it's a, a sin that is then confessed and brought to Christ to be cleansed by his blood. Now John says there is a sin that leads to death, the sin of an unbeliever. And he says there is, oh, he says actually this, I'm not saying that you should pray about that. It's a bit, it's a bit bulky, it's a bit nuanced what John's saying here. I, th- I think this is what he's getting at. In a kind of slightly more wooden way of what he says um, in verse 16 is, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm I'm not speaking about that one that you should pray. I don't think John is here saying, don't pray for unbelievers who sin. I think he's saying, I'm just not talking about that here. Because the situation he wants to focus on is not what happens outside of the church, but what happens inside the church. See, when you see a brother or a sister commit a sin, not that they've fallen away completely and abandoned the faith, but they sin. What should our first response be? Verse 16, you should pray. And why is John talking about this? He's talking about it because this is what he's been talking about in all of the letter. He said over and over again, let us love one another. We're to love one another because being a Christian is being placed in a family. And in our family as Christians, in verse 13, we believe in the name of the Son of God. In our family, we we know that we have eternal life. In our family, we seek to enjoy fellowship with God together in prayer. And sin has no place in such fellowship, but sin is here. We can't deny it. He said in chapter 1, we can't deny that it happens, but we can grieve it. We can grieve the sin that erodes our fellowship. So when we see it, we get on our knees and we pray. This is loving one another in action. And notice what John is saying here when he's speaking about confidence. He's speaking about being confident Christians. He's not saying that this confidence is sinless perfection. He's saying sin happens among confident believers. But confident Christians don't ignore it. They notice it and pray about it. And we know that when we confess our sin, our God is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sin because the blood of Christ has paid for it. God will give them life, he says. And so for us, when we would rather gloss over sins in our fellowship, when we may be too polite or too proper to notice, it could be because we just don't really prize this eternal life that God has given us. Now let's not think that the fellowship we have together with God is is not important enough to allow sin to go unprayed for. Because belief produces confidence. Confidence in prayer and confidence in Christ. 
Now, verse 18 begins a bit of a kind of crescendo of confidence at the end of the letter. Uh, you see how each verse begins here? Verse 18, we know. Down to verse 19, we know. Down to verse 20, we know. Three things that we know, we know. You notice that it's we? It's for the whole church together. These, th- these are things that we should be kind of looking at one another with a knowing smile and saying, we know this. And when one of us forgets it, the rest of us need to gather around and assure us that we know. What do we know? Verse 18, we know that we're safe. See that? Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. That does not continue to sin. It's the the same thing we saw in chapter 3. The kind of sin that refuses Christ and rejects the knowledge of God. Well, the believer sadly does sin, but not that sort of sin. But the point in verse 18 is what the one who was born of God does. Who is he? He's the son of God, born in the flesh and by his coming into the world, by his being born a man. That mighty act of God is what he has done to keep us safe. We know we're safe. Verse 19, we know that we're different. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's the context of our confidence. There's opposition, there's struggle, there's difficulty. But over it all, verse 20, we know that we are in Christ. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. By being in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and the eternal life. We are safe. Uh, and we are different, and that brings all kinds of conflict. But over it all, we are safe in this, in this place of conflict because we are in Christ. Now, why are we safe when we are in Christ? Well, John's told us about this son in his letter. He's told us in chapter 1, verse 7, that this one has shed his blood to cleanse us from our sin. He's told us in chapter 2, verse 1, that this one is an advocate for us before the Father. Now, we might struggle with our prayer life, but he never struggles in his prayer life. And right now he is pleading our cause before the Father in heaven on the basis of his work completed on earth. Chapter 3 verse 8, this is the one who destroys the devil's work. Chapter 4 verse 10, this is the one who is God's love for us. And when we believe, we get Christ, all of Christ. And there's nothing in all of creation that is seen or unseen that is now or is in the future. Nothing can snatch us away from his grasp because we are in his son. We're in Jesus Christ. And the world in which we live is under the control of the devil. So that means that the evil might tempt us and it might entice us, it might seduce us, it might afflict us, it might harass us. And we might fall in that. We might fall into sin and into suffering and into sadness. And yet none of that can take away our hope. Because he will hold us fast. Christ is the one who keeps us safe. And we are to know this. That if we have Christ, we are safe forever. Not because the evil one doesn't roar and growl and prowl and bite. But we don't know that we're safe because everything around us looks rosy and nice. We know we are safe because we have Christ. We're in Christ. And he will keep us safe. So what? Verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That's where it all lands. John's final note in this letter is a warning. We've got to be on guard. There is a danger, a threat. 
And the threat is idolatry. That is it. The threat is a false faith, a false hope, and an imitation of God, a pretense that cannot keep us safe. And it can't hold us fast. And it can't bring us into life forever. See, John writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that they might know they have eternal life. But if they reject Christ, if they turn from Christ or replace him, that's what idolatry is, they can't have the confidence. Do we know what it is to be a Christian? Now, in our Christian life, we can stay stuck as screaming infants. And you know what infants do? They put anything into their mouths. They will eat anything. We've got to keep on guard. The danger is, is that we fail to see the false hopes that creep in. Those subtle Christ alternatives, those idols. And so easily, our functional security, our functional saviour is not Christ, but it's, it's the fridge or the bottle or the TV or the holiday or the retirement fund or the relationship. And Christ has been replaced. Our belief is rooted in testimony and it produces confidence. Our belief, our trust is in the name of the Son of God. So let us, let us marinate in the testimony of God. Let's keep going back to the old, old story. The Bible, we have in the Bible what God has provided, this testimony. Let's live in its pages. And let us mature in the disciplines and delights of prayer. We've got access to God secured in Christ and he's listening. He's listening all the time. Let's be speaking. And let us watch out for one another. And when we see sin, we see our brothers and sisters grasping for Christ's alternatives, let's get on our knees and pray and love enough to confront the sin among us. And in everything, it's Christ. Christ alone. Christ always. He will. He will keep us safe. Let us pray. Father in heaven, the wonders of your love are beyond our searching out. That you would give your son, you would give your own dear son into the world to be the sacrifice for our sins and not only give him for us, but give him to us so that in him we might have these blessings upon blessings. Lord God in heaven, help us to believe on him, to believe the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe the testimony about him. And as we believe, may we know that we have this eternal life. Lord, I pray that we might know the security of belonging to you through Jesus Christ. Amen.